This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. We're going to talk about perspective. We're going to talk about resiliency. We're going to talk about that move from what it means to be resilient into an anti-fragile society, anti-fragile emergency manager, and how do we make ourselves very valuable in the community that you work, that you live, and you play in. Because as an emergency manager, it's not just the jurisdiction that you're working for or the company that you're working for that you're doing things for. If we have that large-scale disaster that you live in, I know in the hearts of hearts that you guys will be involved in helping with your community as well. So that's why we're going to talk about this. Let's talk about perspective first. <clears throat> I just had a, it's, uh, <laughs> I was here in Grand Rapids for all of what, uh, two hours? I think I landed at 10 o'clock and uh, I met a couple people. We're like, hey, let's go out and we'll grab a drink. And we went to this bar and uh, we go into the bar and I go up to the talk to the person and I'll take my culpability here at this point. And I'm waiting to get um, served. And some guy walks over and he kind of interrupts, you know, just jumps in front of the line. And I go, hey. I said, I'm standing here. And the guy's like, oh. And the bartender gets mad at me, starts yelling at me. And so I turn around to the guy who, I said, okay, yeah, my bad. I shouldn't have jumped in. The bartender does this thing. And I pat him on the back. I go, hey, sorry, bud, about that. And the bartender starts, he goes, oh, I can't believe you did this. And he's like, get out of my bar. And he starts yelling. So I leave. So I've, the first time ever in my life, I've been kicked out of a bar for apologizing to somebody. <laughs> but perspective is, is that that bartender didn't understand or hear because it's loud that I was apologizing to the guy. He just saw me turn around and say something to the, to the patron. And so he, in his mind, he's probably protecting his patron from somebody who, uh, you know, was there. Now, the worst part about it is I didn't even really have a drink yet. You know, I was just so, <laughs> so I, I, first time I've ever been kicked out of the bar for not buying a drink and saying sorry to somebody. You know, as a Navy guy, I've been kicked out of plenty of bars and nicer places than I was in. So, but uh, I was, it's a perspective, right, of, of where you're coming from. And I think that we start talking about the idea of resiliency, right? It's the perspective of where we're at. What does it mean to be resilient? Now, I really was early on the bandwagon for the idea of resiliency. I wrote many of position papers, lectured about this in my classroom, about what resiliency is and how you can make a community that's resilient from disaster, right? And what this means and the idea of recovery and how to make, you know, make people whole again, right? Finding that what is whole, what is normal, to get back to normal. But if you think about what we're doing here with COVID, is there a normal, right? Is normal now, since I really will say it's, endemic now, right? Is masks going to be the new normal, right? Um, so we don't know. We don't know what normal really is. I responded to um, the Blue Cut fire in California, and homes were destroyed uh, by this fire. I mean, they burnt down to the ground, like there's nothing left of them. If you guys ever responded to a wildland fire, you'll understand and appreciate the damage that happens. And the idea of these people coming back and being resilient to build their home again at the same spot, right? Um, it's kind of interesting because they just said it's an area that burns, right? And so is that being resilient? I don't know, right? 
is of being foolish. I don't know. I, I can't put myself into their, into their shoes. But I, I originally thought this was something that a resilient person does, right? They have stresses. They have pressures. And they come back from those. And they rebuild. And then move on. But then I started thinking about this. Um, Randy over here, he uh, suggested I read this book from Nassan Taleb called Anti-Fragile. And I read the book, and it's more based upon economics. I don't know if you guys have ever read any stuff with Taleb. He's, Black Swan is a, probably the most famous book that he has. And the Anti-Fragile book really goes into how do you make yourself resistant from economic downturns, right? So it's the idea, and he talks about in the book, he uses um, a difference between a guy, and I don't know if these are real people or something he made up, but we'll still use his uh, examples, that one brother was a taxi driver, and the other brother was a doctor, right? And the doctor, you know, working more hours for more money in the short run, but when something, when a downturn occurs and they have to get positions or maybe there's not patients coming in here, the taxi driver at the end of the day is still making more money because he, has, he diversifies himself in how he makes his income. So how do we do that for a community? How do we move that community from the idea of going, hey, are we disaster ready? Right? And Brock Long talks about the concept of the, the culture preparedness, which I really subscribe to as well. Right? We need to be working with our community and getting them prepared for disaster. And even preparedness is like one of those concepts that are very vague. Right? If you ask one person what's preparedness, you know, outside of the person who, which is odd, we, we talk about preparedness, but then we make fun of people who are, the doomsday prepper, right? and we have them you know, living in their bunker with all their food and whatnot. Right? Or then you go to the other side of somebody who says, yes, I'm prepared. And I bought this really cool kit at the store and it says I'm ready for 72 hours. And it has like, you know, the Coast Guard water and some little Coast Guard food things in there. And you're going, are you really prepared for 72 hours? So even the concept of preparedness for most people is, is very abstract. And so then we're asking them, hey, we want you to be prepared for a disaster, which we don't really give them any guidelines of what it really means to be prepared. Now, you can get stuff from the Red Cross. You get stuff from, you know, governmentready.gov that talks about preparedness and building a kit, building a plan, right? But it's, it's very vague to them, right? Um, most people, you know, go to certain courses, you know, when you talk about them. Even they are, are not really 100% uh, prepared, if you will, if you think about this, right? How many of you all before... <laughs> COVID hit, had enough toilet paper in your house to last you for like three months. You know, very few, because all of a sudden we're out of, out of toilet paper. And then I went to the grocery store at the beginning of COVID. Uh, yeah, I live in Orange County, California, and uh, with the Ralph's is the grocery store near us. It's a Kroger's if, if you guys are, are on some other places. And there's people just buying stuff, right? And I... <laughs> I walked around, I, my, my wife was shopping, and I walked around to look at what people were putting in carts, and they're just putting this random stuff in carts. I think people are just looking to purchase something because they were afraid. They weren't prepared. And they thought they're gonna run out of food because the toilet paper ran away. And so then there's like runs on water and milk and meat and other things like this because people were afraid. Is that prepared? Is that something that's becoming a resilient community? No, it really isn't, right? So how do we, as emergency managers, how do we really message to the community, right, to be prepared for almost anything, right? For us, it's earthquakes and fires. 
All right, if you live near the coast, I suppose tsunamis in California. All right, those are the big ones. Other disasters could occur, but those are the ones we talk about because it's, it's, it's there. We have earthquakes every day, literally. Not, most of you can't feel. So how do we get the people from <clears throat> that movement from going, okay, I have my 72-hour kit, which is full of Coast Guard water and, you know, uh, edible crackers, basically, um, to running, making a run on a grocery store. I talked to the grocery store manager that day. You know, I was taking some pictures. And uh, I was like, is this good for business? Right? I mean, you guys making more money? And he goes, well, on the short run it is. He goes, we're, we're selling out of everything, which I guess is good. He goes, but on the, on the long run, he goes, we can't get supplies back in fast enough to, to keep the things going, right? So now we have a supply chain issue. Now, again, I'm going to talk about California because that's where I'm at. If you go down to the coast, well, you wouldn't want to go down there right now because we have a uh, oil spill going on. But if, you, if it was not smelly because it's very gassy. You go down to the coast, and you can look out there, and there's like, I forget how many ships, like 45, 50 container ships floating around out, out there, trying to get into the port of Long Beach. All of our stuff is on there, and you go to the grocery stores today, not the grocery stores mostly, but to the stores today, and you're starting to see empty shelves, right? Talk about my wife again, because she does all the shopping. And um, she was saying that she went to... Uh, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, it's, we get coffee there. You guys ever go to Bed Bath & Beyond? Raise your hand. Okay. So when you go to Bed Bath & Beyond, if you've been, been there, it's always just packed full of stuff. Like, you can barely move your cart around the, grocery, the store. She's like, there's nothing in the store. There's nothing on the shelves. She goes, it's a pretty empty place, right? Which is kind of just telling that we are looking at some issues specifically associated with supply chain again. So how do we create a resilient community, right, where we have supply chain issues? Now, to look in the past to see forward, right? If you think about what we did in the 1940s and the 1930s, I guess, if you will, <clears throat> um, when it came to preparedness, I think about my grandparents. My grandfather and my grandmother had a small farm in Saratoga, New York, and, but they grew all their own vegetables. They canned. They did everything up there. Um, I mean, it was a farm, so I suppose they had more property. But even in, like, the city in Albany, New York, and Troy, in those areas, right? People had the victory gardens. They knew how to take care of themselves. They knew how to can fruits and vegetables and stuff. And so you start thinking that way. So one of the things I did when I was um, at the Seal Beach Police Department with our CERT program, our volunteer programs, is we had one of the, um, I partnered with the Mormon stake over there, and uh, they actually taught people how to do can, canning. Right? It was sort of a fun class. Do you guys ever take a canning class? Uh, canning? Yeah. It's kind of a fun thing to do. But you can can like everything. It's like, and there's nothing in the world that you can't can. It's like, we're canning like toys. Just, you know, they'll seal it up and now you got a can full of toys. So just stuff like that. It was kind of fun. We're just doing some, some stuff like this. But why, why are we not thinking about those type of events when we talk about community preparedness? Again, we're back to the 72-hour kit, right? easy to buy. You know, there's companies that are here today that I'm sure are selling 72-hour kits. It's easy to buy, inexpensive, I suppose, relatively speaking. Right, but we're talking, yeah. Carol has a question in the back. Run, Bryce, run. It's fast. 
that. Okay. I have a couple things to, to say, and I just hope that you're going to just spin off of them. Sure. So let's talk about risk ownership, which is kind of goes back to that notion of the canning, right? And how we have the skills and we understand that's our responsibility, risk ownership. It is a key element of resilience, understanding that we own the risk. And we have, uh, as much as we have tried, not been wholly effective in communicating that to the public, the ownership of risk. And that's a complex issue because we have we have organizations, agencies that are responding to things that people believe are carrying that risk for them. So, you know, the standard thing that FEMA will come in and save the day, that messaging, that has hurt our ability to transfer risk ownership to citizens and communities. So that's the number one issue of resilience. Resilience is essentially risk ownership, right? A recognition that stuff happens and that it could happen to you and then recognizing that it's it's on you to then deal with that but it should never be why me it should be why not me mm. so that's kind of this resilience fear but we can never get there without the risk ownership space so you're talking about resilience there's two levels micro and macro for the community right so if every citizen is part of the answer to the resilience quandary at the community level, we have the point of failure happening right there at the citizen level. So it is so complex an issue that when you do see someone, then you say, oh my God, this is what resilience looks like. You, it's, it's mind boggling to try and wind that back and say, how did this happen? But it's, it's not a simple issue, right? So I want to say on this thing about preparedness because I'm going to push back on the empty shelves. Uh, supply chain, no, but empty shelves. So when the pandemic first happened and people went out and got the things they needed in mass at the same time, we said hoarding. It wasn't hoarding. It was preparedness. Fair enough. And so... I, you know, yes, then we had supply chains. There's so many things wrapped up in the supply chain issues for this event. But I live in North Dakota, and let me just say, if there is a winter storm, there is a rule. Get out and get your baked goods before the storm, yeah. right? Do whatever you're going to be doing before the storm. And it does kind of strip the shelves, but we know it's a thing, right? So it becomes part of the identity. It isn't a fail a failure. It's part of our understanding of how we're going to be responsive in those events. So I think it's just a, it's a very complex issue and I look forward to hearing others in this audience really talking about how we deal with some of these challenges that really start with the individuals that we have virtually no control over. Thanks. Let's talk about that. And you're right, I don't think it's hoarding either. I do think some of the stuff that they're purchasing though is was through the panic buy, and that was my point about that, right? They're just walking. They felt they needed to buy something, so they bought. They bought something, right? Maybe not even with direction of what they were thinking of doing with it. But, you know, I, I grew up in upstate New York, like I said, and every time that we had a, a winter storm, the, my dad owned delis, so I know this firsthand. <laughs> I mean, as, as far as, like, the, the shelves getting empty. And it seemed like everybody, when a winter storm was coming, the, the three things they would buy was, was milk, bread, and, and eggs. Right, it was milk, bread, and eggs. They just buy those things. 
So, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Randy. No problem, Todd. I'll take on Dr. Swiak. All right. <clears throat> uh, I would say it's preparedness if they were coming to the store to purchase something to be prepared. Uh, but it was a fear of the lack of the supply chain because if we're buying things that we're not going to have a shortage of and then that's creating a shortage, that's being done out of fear. It's not being done out of I'm going to the store because I want to be prepared for the coming pandemic. So while the result may be the same, I think that the, the phenomena was not out of preparedness, but it was out of fear. And it was definitely fear buying right, this happened. Like I said, and that's the thing that blew my mind when you're walking through the grocery store. It wasn't like people were buying stuff on with. There, I mean, there's there was a lot of people just walking through the aisles and just going, okay, this looks like there's some stuff here. I'm going to buy this, whatever this is, and just put it into their grocery store cart. So I think that's where some of the fear buying comes into because they weren't sure if they're going to have anything left. And we, and we do still have. I mean, like I, I think we're still reeling from that supply chain issue from from back in 2020, um, which didn't really get fixed. And now that we have this whole cargo ship thing going on, um, we're seeing it seeing it happen again. And you're starting to see restrictions on purchases as well, too, right? Like the Costco by my house, um, we're now back to only being able to buy one package of paper goods, whether it's toilet paper or, toilet, you know, um, so. They're going back to that again, which I think is interesting. Um, but I don't, know, I don't realize that toilet paper is coming from overseas, but I guess it is. Um, so, so we have those issues that are going on. But the, the point here now, is, the point of this lecture, is like if we're moving now from the concept of preparedness, right, and then like risk ownership with resiliency, right, we need to take it one step further. We need to take it one step further to be able to prepare our communities, not only to be resilient from disasters, which is being able to recover from and go back to the sense of normal or go back to where we were before, right? Rebound to where we were, but go further, take that one step further. And I think of Whittier, California. The Whittier earthquake happens. Anybody from California? Okay. So this happened, like, I think it was like 1985 or something like that, 1987, I forget the, the year. Um, and there's this, in Whittier, there's a street called Greenleaf. It's their uptown area. It's kind of like their um, entertainment district, I suppose, for lack of a better term. And during that time, the, on that street, there's a theater there, and it was a, a triple X theater. Not a great community building place, right? People aren't, like, really happy to bring their children out to uh, walk the streets where, where that is. And so what Whittier did is after that earthquake, if they rezoned and said, you can no longer have that, that theater there uh, as a triple X theater. We need to move you out, uh, rezone some businesses, and really made uh, the recovery on the uptown area much better. So much so that when I moved to Whittier in 1996, um, or 97, I guess, uh, I actually saw uh, Toy Story in that, in that same theater. <laughs> so, so it's much more family friendly, right? You know, people bring their family next door to it. There's an ice cream shop and there's a coffee shop and there's places, things to do. And the community rallied around making that area better. And I think that's what anti-fragility really is and how we can use anti-fragility into our communities, right? is isn't just about making our community back to normal to where we were before, but how do we become stronger and better after a disaster or an event happens to our community? Isn't that also sometimes called disaster gentrification? 
it could be, I suppose, right? But I mean, it depends on what you're doing. If that means that community is really gentrified, right? Does it doesn't necessarily mean that the community that was there doesn't stay there, right? You know. But if you're pouring the money into it and you're making it nicer and you're redoing the theater and you're making it more family friendly, then it sounds like the community before wasn't family friendly. They they rezone that area specifically, right? To to move things out. It doesn't necessarily mean that the business owner. So I mean, gentrification. This is really, if we want to dive into that for a couple seconds here, right? You know, um, it's the realistically is, is moving it from one type of community to another, right? So mostly you're seeing it as a minority community with the majority of whites moving into the community. We've seen a lot of this over in Los Angeles in the last few years, right? But in this case here, it doesn't have to necessarily be that way. Okay. So we have. Well, let's take a look at uh, South Central, for instance, or I'm sorry, South LA. Right after the um, the riots in South LA, if there's ever a problem in the area, we just rename it. Right, so we went from South Central, could no longer call that to South LA, but that area realistically has more minority-owned businesses. Right, uh, but the investments came in from Magic Johnson coming in and putting his movie theater over there, um, other kind of businesses that opened up that were not liquor stores. Right. That area after the riots, 92, didn't get gentrified necessarily in the sense of what we talk about, what we think about gentrified, but it became more of an economic stimulus into that area owned by the community members that live there. So just because that you are saying, hey, we're going to make this community better, which in that sense, right, from the area of the riots where things were burnt down and, you know, build, you know liquor stores are a, a, a problem because they're on every corner store. There's actually grocery stores, well, not as many as there should be, but there's some more grocery stores in that area, right? That community got stronger by that economic investment, right? And that the minority-owned businesses are opened up there. So, so it doesn't necessarily mean that when you do this, you're gentrifying the area or making it more expensive so people you know, can't live there. And what it's saying is that how do we take that when we have devastation and how do we turn that into something that's positive? Sir, Randy. Bryce. Um, <clears throat> yeah, last year um, I was um, presenting about resilience on the one of conference and, um, and I, I was preparing slide and then back of my desk I heard music, Kelly Clarkson's music. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. <laughs> <laughs> but does it? You have to learn from the, your mistakes, how you overcome. So you have to learn not only building you know, better uh, community and home physically, but also your programmatic update. You need to review your emergency management plan, your land use plan, how your community is really equipped to deal with the future crisis and climate changes. So I think we need to look into uh, having process of learning from the past mistakes or accident, and that's why FEMA is doing after action report process and then we have to update and prepare, mm -hmm. not only physical you know, upgrade, but programmatic and the physical and other aspect. Well, absolutely. And, and, and there is a, a one area fix, right? And we do have to take, Bryce, there's a question over here, right? So we do have to look at the programs and what we're doing. And you know, the interesting thing too, when we, when we really take a look at this and kind of going back to perspective, right? Um, when the idea perspective of gentrification, when you're saying, hey, we're putting more money into a community, right? 
that's a perspective that I'm from one side, but if you take a look at the other, we're saying, hey, we're not just moving this community, we're, we're investing this community to make it stronger. Question or comment? So the city of Boston's OEM is contracting with MIT on post-disaster evictions, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on the impact of post-disaster evictions on uh, you know, community resilience. Whew. That's a because, so, so the question that I'm, so it's a series of roundtables and the question I'm pushing them on is whether or not those evictions are uh, causing a decline in the average rent duration, uh, because I think there's an argument to be made that renters, as you see uh, more younger people renting opposed to buying, their per risk perception is going to be impacted by whether or not they can pick up and leave and how that plays into creating uh, resilient but transient uh, renting communities and the coastal communities. Uh, I think that's the key that word that, that, that you said there, the transient. Um, the, the communities that have lots of renters and the ability for them just to pick up and leave, they tend to have more um, issues like that, right? So you see these that um, we've seen, well, let's look at Louisiana first, right, before we go to Boston. You know, um, after Hurricane Katrina, there was like a 52% decrease in the population in the city of Louisiana because they all moved out to different areas. And then I think right now... And, and didn't get moved back. They got forcefully moved and right. didn't get forcefully moved back. Right, that's the point. Right, and then they see, like, I think it's, I think it's still today, I think there's still a 20% reduction of a population from, from that time. Right, and, and is it easy... Is it, you know, easy, especially with financial help, is it easy to move and, and leave the community? And, then, and that, when we start taking a look at that, right, and this is, this is the human impacts of disaster, right? If you guys want to take my class at UCI, I teach the class called the human impacts of disaster. Uh, we'll be taking a semester coming up here in January. I'm just mad, I'm just joking. Um, no, but the, the human impacts of disasters is, is legit, right? And, and so when you start seeing this happen for people being able to transit, to be able to move out of the area because they have the ability to, and they're, they're not economically tied into the community, it, it, it's, it's, it's a problem, but it doesn't have to be, and I hate top-down information. I hate top, this is my personal perspective. I hate top-down where the government comes in and says, this is what we're doing to this community, right? It needs, to be, it needs to be a combination. So you should be working not just with the renters, which is important, but you should be also working with the landlords, obviously. You should also be working with the economic development in that area, right? Because with, realistically, with those three things, because the things that keep people in the community right, especially when it's college students and whatnot, is really that economic opportunity that's there. Because if there isn't an economic opportunity, and part of the reason why we lost a lot of people to Louisiana in Louisiana is because the economic opportunity wasn't there, right? And so I think that's the most important part. Um, whether with the eviction part of it, I don't know what the policy is, and, and I, I, I can't really speak to that necessarily. I mean, you probably can speak to it closer, better than I can. But are you talking specifically COVID evictions or... after a presidential declaration or whatever, and then they're just going to fix it. And I'll, I'll just re go ahead and repeat. So they did, what they were doing, the research they were doing is they were looking at disaster uh, declarations, and then after that, the amount of filings for uh, evictions with the, the going through the legislative process, and obviously a lot of them get settled out of court, but 
um, what that process looked like after a disaster was this a significant spike uh, to show that there's something there that is worth looking at. And, and without really looking at the study or the data, my guess, my gut would be on that is that because they just didn't have the ability to get a job after the disaster, that their that their economic, you don't know. Okay. There's a question in the back. So along his lines, I'm from Kansas City, Kansas, and we're going through the same thing right now, but we've partnered with our municipal court where evictions are filed and trying to catch them. There's like an interim period in between when you file and when you get kicked out of your house and trying to get social services involved, trying to negate that gap period to try to make sure they don't get evicted and trying to get our NGOs and things like that um, helping in a way that they haven't helped before. Some of the CARES money has helped and the ARPA money, but those are specifically like COVID related. And some of the rest of them, I mean, if you go anywhere, um, businesses have just gone. And so they don't have the opportunity to go back to work after a disaster. In that realm, in our world, we have a huge housing crisis because now that we've moved through that and people can get evicted now, landlords are opting to sell their house and get out of the rental business. So they're selling their houses for cheap. Right. But in our world, um, we're in Wyandotte County and Johnson County is another super urban in the Kansas side. Um, even though it's a super cheap house in Wyandotte, you still have to pay ten to fifteen thousand over asking price. In Johnson, it's thirty to fifty. So we have a, a crazy housing crisis right now because we don't have those rental properties anymore. And so then, what do you do? Because building a house takes nine months, but all that stuff that you need to build your house is sitting on those ships. Right. So right. what do you do? Have you seen the price, the price of plywood? She was saying that if you couldn't hear um, that um, the plywood, her area, they couldn't even get to it. Be, they couldn't even purchase it because there wasn't enough out there. And so, uh, and, if the, and the prices were insane. So I, I'll, I'll tell you another, another personal story. So when the, when the COVID first hit and we were staying at home, um, I decided to do a, a project with my daughter and we built a little free library, you know, those like little. And so I went and bought this one big piece of plywood that could be really thick, right? It's made for being outdoors and stuff. I paid like $58 for the sheet, right? Um, I went back to Home Depot the other day just to look, took a look around and the same sheet of plywood I purchased for $58 uh, is now like 107, you know? So the building costs and stuff like that go up. But, you know, that aside, I mean, you know, again, working with the community, this is where we come as emergency managers because what do we do? What's, our, what's the best thing as emergency managers? What, what are we known for doing? Very much so. Coordinating, bringing people together, building those bridges, right? There's a reason why 
when we talk about homelessness, uh, specifically Seattle, I think, did it when they were talking about moving it into an emergency management role. And, I, and I'm really not for that. I don't think that that's necessarily what we should be doing because it's uh, basically there's a whole bunch of difference behind it. But I'm not saying that we shouldn't be part of the problem, part of the solution. Shouldn't just be our job. I don't know. But um, the idea here, though, is we do great jobs of building those bridges and bringing people together, bringing the community together. And so when you're working specifically, when you're talking about uh, economic disadvantaged areas, how do we fix that? How do we work with our chamber of commerce? And why aren't we working? How many of you guys work with your chamber of commerce on a regular day before a disaster occurs? Very few, right? Why aren't you reaching out to them? Why, isn't, why aren't you working hand in hand with your economic development um, groups? Most counties have them. Bigger cities have them. Chamber of Commerces are, are around, right? Um, whether you're working with your, your other organizations that are business related organizations, Qantas or Rotary, those groups like that, right? Building those bridges before a disaster occurs, helping that with the economic development of your community. Because at the end of the day, when we start building the economic development of your community, that's helping the community become resilient, moving from that to anti-fragility, to moving to the anti-fragile community. You had a question? Yeah, I Todd. First time caller and long time listener to the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, it's just your last sentence that I actually wanted to jump on. Um, what, what do you see as the key difference? Because what you described as anti-fragility earlier, to me, still seems like what we should be describing as resilience. I understand the concept to be um, the adaptation, um, the, that flexibility, the, the returning back, but also returning, I think, to a new normal. I think, uh, you know, after my cardiologist told me a month ago that I need to lose some weight, it doesn't change me, right? I, when I start getting a fit, I'm still who I am at centrally at the core, but I'm perhaps more resilient to, to heart attacks. Um, uh, so. I think that at the community level, it's about you can't you can't be resilient. I think a lot of our weaknesses in in resilience is not knowing what the core of that community is. When you talked earlier about um, the example of moving out the the theater, you know, doing some rezoning. If, if that was top down, then I absolutely agree that's regentrification. But if that's the community saying, well, this isn't who we want to be, um, who we really are is not defined by the shape we're in. Um, then I think that they are building a resilient future by choosing who they want to be and investing through themselves and through support and coaching, whatever, towards that. So where does that, where do we move from just good quality resilience towards anti-fragility? It's a great question. And, and, and this is kind of where the crutch of this whole thing goes to because the idea of resilience, if using the definition that we use today, Right, even if we take a look at the ecology definition, which most of us are using in the idea of emergency management, of a system that has stresses and, and, and pressures put onto it, but is able to come back to where it was before. Taking that step further into the idea of anti-fragility is not just coming back to where you were before, it's becoming better. And the example of this that I think is it's abstract, just an abstract example, obviously, is that if you take a pane of glass, right, and you break it, it shards, Right? And if it was a resilient piece of glass and when you broke it, it shards, it turns into diamonds. Right? So how do you do this to the community? Right? The community is broken into shards. And how do you turn those broken shards into diamonds, something that's harder than that broken glass was ever? And that's the idea of resiliency. How do you, so it's abstract, right? So you gotta think about this for a minute and you gotta put this into perspective of how do we move that into a community? 
a bunch of our communities just went through a lot of stresses outside of just the COVID, right? Um, Santa Monica, for instance, uh, burned down. Parts of it did, right, during the, uh, during the riots in L.A. Parts of Los Angeles did, Long Beach, Orange County, there are areas that were attacked and burnt. I know we're talking about, uh, you know, all over the country it happened. So I'm just going to talk about my, my experience. I can't really talk about the others, right? How do we turn those communities that just had that, that strife, how do we turn them into a better community? How do we turn them into something that's stronger than where they were before? Because at the end of the day, this is where we need to go, right? Because if we go back to where normal is, is that what that community really wants? Right? If we're talking about law, you know, police reform, if you will, right? Obviously, the concept of defund the law enforcement is very poorly worded or put together. But if we go into the idea of doing better training for law enforcement to make them more understanding of the community that they're serving, I have a good friend of mine who says, why don't we have beat cops again? The guys who were walking the street like we had in, you know, in New York where the guys were actually beat cops and they understood they knew kids, they knew the kids that were playing in the yards and doing the things, right? Is that something that could make that community now anti-fragile where we won't have that again? I'm not saying that's the, the, the solution necessarily, but is it, you know, going to that direction? So that's the really difference between, I'll get to you, that's the difference between the idea of resiliency to go back to normal, go back to where you were, to anti-fragility, to go back to where you're stronger and better and a better place to be. How do we get there, right? That's the hard part. So none of this is easy, right? If this is easy, we wouldn't be here talking about it, right? But the concepts of being able to do this, and I think, I think strongly and believe that as emergency managers, we can be that conduit and that bridge. I think that we're the ones that we come into the room and the conversation with the community not wearing a badge, whether it's fire or law enforcement, Right? But we're bringing the community together because at the end of the day, we're supposed to be rebuilding communities. That's what we do. Right? We understand that portion of it. So we could be that bridge from the idea of becoming resilient back to normal, right? to being anti-fragile, but better after we have that stressors and those, those things put on us. That's kind of where I'm with this. Right? This, this is this, this, this journey that I'm going down doing research on writing and writing. Thank you, Randy, for putting this into my head and spending many hours of, of writing. So that's this concept, right, of, of where are we going, where are we, where are we pushing this to? Carol. Thank you, my friend. You're my favorite person. So what about social capital? And not only the social capital that we're, we can potentially develop, which you've been referencing, right, prior to any of that, because... A community, I'm, I would posit that a community's resilience, the story of that is written before the event, right? But we do know social capital does help us have different types of recovery and it's a very positive aspect that we want to see in recovery. So, I mean, what did, I'm asking you, you know, what are your thoughts on social capital? I heard you say it's great in the front end for resilience, right? But what does social capital in an event do? Is that getting us towards, um, is it anti-fragile, the term you're using? The one that has a more economic base? Because it's, that isn't a social capital foundation, right? 
So does it have an anti-fragility? Does social capital have a role? That's what I'm asking you, Todd. And I don't know if you have the answer. I don't. So it's not like it's a quiz. It's actually <laughs> a thought exercise. Thanks for that. <laughs> yes, I, I have to think about this, you know, Again, going back to the stuff that I've been doing for the social impacts of disasters, right? And, and, and really building on, on Daniel Ulrich's work, uh, what he's looked at too, right? And he wrote the book Resilience. And one of the reasons I kind of started going down that pathway of resiliency is because of Daniel Ulrich. If you guys don't know who Daniel Ulrich is, I highly recommend that you buy his books. Um, he's, a, he's a great guy. And if you want to listen to the podcast, I've interviewed him a few times. Um, and, and the idea here, though, is taking a look, not just here at the United States for a minute, right? So he went and researched all the stuff that happened over in Japan um, after the uh, tsunami in Fukushima and the earthquake, right? And, and goes into the idea of social capital that's being built um, specifically around that. that. And there were, but there's some interesting stuff on that too, right? Especially the impacts of the disaster to them is that, um, you know, people that were from Fukushima, specifically when they moved to other areas, made up a new place where they lived because people didn't uh, want to associate with it, right? Because they felt they had nuclear waste with them or something along those lines. But, but that idea, though, is that this, the community was already building these things beforehand, building the idea of resiliency beforehand anyway in Japan. And Japan, if you guys have not done too much research on them, they're an amazing, um, when it comes to emergency preparedness, uh, it's an amazing place to look at, right? We need to learn a lot of lessons from that country when it comes to bring, bringing those ideas back over here. Social capital, specifically, is what we lose, right, um, when we don't engage our community. They need trust. And when we think, think about this, we go back to, to New Orleans, you know, there was a lot of lack of trust between the, the locals and the, and the government. Uh, there's plenty of research that's done on it. It's not my research. But, I mean, so you see them. And, and so, so for them to be able to, to trust that the government was actually there for them, um, you know, it wasn't there. You can't build that, that social capital after the event. Uh, you know, it has to be built prior to it. Yes? I'd argue social capital is being built after the event. It's just not the one you want. True. I'm serious. Um, and you talk about the community, but most of the, I think, demographics we're talking about, these people probably think they're in multiple communities. And I don't mean geographically, right? Like, what do people use to define themselves and then how to get their information? Part, I've read this book, part of what he's talking about is the behavioral economics of how do you get people to change how, what their decision making and how they do outside of the everybody's rational and we're going to do everything in a very rational way. If you understand the motivations, right? then it does a very, it's a very rational decision when you understand all of the pieces. It's not just a finance component, right? But then during the event, the more social capital they have, the more connection they have to get the best information. And then the better they feel about their own confidence level and their response and their value in the overarching leadership decision. So some of that is in the beginning, right? Figuring out who are your communities, do you have information in their languages, right? Like basic things. Uh, and then how can you get the folks to believe you? Because a lot of folks who are not here from the U.S. have a different relationship with their government, right, and their government officials than what a lot of people understand. And so if we are really trying to get to, we don't care. We just know you need help. 
right? right? And it's going to help us a lot better to get you right here before you're officially kicked out. Is there something we can do? Because I got a buddy and they can give you some, you know, some food, right? Or whatever it is. And a lot of the times the systems aren't deconflicted. So a good example would be childcare during Harvey. You couldn't open up a childcare center that was USDA funded because they didn't have power. Right. So people couldn't go to work because they didn't have childcare. Well, you could get a USDA waiver. There, there are ways to address that, but if you don't know how to do that, you're not even gonna open up your car, child care centers. And these are the people who've been doing this for a long time. So all of these things together, but I think it's taking a, an us versus them kind of thought, engaging, hey, if this happens again, what do you need, right? Hmm. How will you believe this information about warning or living in a, in a potentially higher area, right? How can we help change your mindset and get it so that you own the risk, right? Clearly they know that, but a lot of people are, again, working paycheck to paycheck, right? And they don't have the kind of resources that a lot of other people do. So they don't have access to even think about. Right? If, you don't, if you can't feed your kids or pay your rent, you don't care about the rest. And I'm not trying to say we're gonna you know, make everybody the same, but you have to restructure things rather than just tell them, oh, you should have this much savings and this much in insurance. Well, that's not gonna work. <laughs> so let's figure out ways to help them build these other pieces so that they don't keep getting victimized over and over and over and over and over again. You know, I, I think it's, it, and you're right, and I, one of the things I, I really found interesting is the concept of micro, micro banking and, and why we don't allow that, and, and why we don't allow that in our communities. And, and it's a good, two things on that. One is go back to the community thing. You're absolutely right. Community is not a monolith. It's not one particular place. And if you live in any city, there's, there's, there's communities that are defined by blocks, right? There's communities defined by, you know, by a river. So, so yeah, so don't, don't, don't take this as being a community as one city, right? I really want you to get down to the granular aspect of what a community is. That's a whole other conversation. But going back to the, to the microbanking, that's one of the things that I think is really important that we see because going back to the financial literacy of, of the community again, especially in the lower economic areas, right? Who, what, where do they bank? Some of these people don't even have a bank because they don't have enough money coming in to have big, so they use those uh, predatory um, areas of like the uh, payday loan places and check cashing places which have a, a high uh, cost of to, to check the cash, the, ca the cash to check, right? But if we allowed microbanking, um, the FCC would have to go through this, or the FCC, Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, right? Would have to allow that uh, to occur and we're seeing some resistance to the ability to have microbanking which is like, literally community-owned banks. You know, we're seeing, you know, credit unions and stuff like this popping up, but they're a little bit different. But um, I think that's a way we could start. It's really great success in India, right? We've seen people in India getting out of poverty due to being able to do micro-banking. So, uh, you know, and, and I, I like to look at globally when we talk about, about this because we can learn so many lessons from other places, not just here in the United States. And we can take those things, uh, I know the judges said that he doesn't like the idea of best practices, but they do exist, right? Or best ideas, or, or being able to implement them and to be able to learn from each other. And I think that's what we have to do, and that's what we're trying to do here today. Yes, ma'am. I don't want to take the conversation too far off, but with the concept of micro-banking, uh -huh. how do you think the opportunity of like cryptocurrency helps propel that a little bit? Because that's kind of what I'm hearing on the street, and I'm from Oakland. Right. Cryptocurrency. I actually played cryptocurrency. I'm trying to learn more about it. Um, I mean, it's a good example. I mean, the the the, the blockchain specifically uh, is is secure, right? Uh, it's an interesting way they do. Are you guys familiar with blockchain? 
you need to learn about blockchain. It's, it's an amazing, we, we could actually, I, I, was, I was reading this uh, a paper on blockchain and the, the ability to have like secure online voting through the blockchain. I think it's just kind of a, because there's multiple choices. It's just really interesting. I'm not a blockchain expert by any means, so don't ask me too much about it because what I just told you is about what I know. But um, when it comes to cryptocurrency, yeah, the only problem that we have with cryptocurrency at this point, right, is, is like the, the, and we're seeing this happening right now uh, with some of the stuff that the Biden administration is doing, is, is they want to try to figure out how to, how to tax it, right? And, and so I think you're seeing a lot of um, issues specifically associated with, with it because the government doesn't trust it. Um, but I think it's a viable solution, you know, if you want to get into it. But I mean, you, again, the thing is with cryptocurrency, you have to be educated on how to, how to do it. It's, it's, it's a, not necessarily complicated because if I could figure it out, anybody could figure it out, trust me, right? But the idea is, is knowing when to buy, when to sell, what it is, like, you know, it's, there's a lot of a process to it. Uh, if anybody ever wants to do it, you can. There's a bunch of places you can go and put like 50 bucks into it and like learn how to use the system. It's pretty interesting, but I mean, it is a choice. It is. A, I, I I think it's a viable solution. Spending is interesting. Some places take crypto. I don't understand how that works, but uh, you can go with some sort of crypto credit card and spend it. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I think it's a solution. Yes. Sorry, coming back, Todd. You just mentioned the word trust, and it's something that was actually bouncing around in my head because um, the reason that things like cryptocurrency are being seriously considered is that level of, of trust that doesn't exist. And um, what uh, I just I just Googled it, so I, I now know more than I knew before my last <laughs> question. But um, Andy Fragility, he discusses innovation, right, as opposed to adaptation. Yes. Um, and um, innovation only comes through trust because you can't innovate if you're, I mean, if your intellectual property or your idea is gonna be stolen um, or if um, you'll be stabbed in the back. Adaptation can be survival mode, right? It can be protection, but innovation takes risk. And I think all of this is gonna tie back to that idea of social capital. Communities that innovate are communities that trusted each other beforehand. Trust is an interesting concept and, and you're right. And, and again, coming back to what we do, I think that we have a unique position to build trust within the communities. Normally when we walk into the room, and, and I would say if you guys are emergency managers that work for a uniform service, if you go to the meeting, I wouldn't wear a uniform. And, and, and I mean this not necessarily in a negative way, but the idea here is if you want to build that trust, you can't, the uniform is now a wall, right? The uniform is now a wall between you and that person that you're talking to because now they see authority, right? And so you don't build trust when you come in with specifically just authority. And so as we're looking at the community, I think is again, as emergency managers, if we want to move our communities from from, from being prepared, right, the cultural preparedness, and to the idea of being resilient so when a disaster occurs, they can prepare, and then going into anti-fragility. It is about trust. I'll get you. Right? It is about being able to walk into the room and be able to have a conversation, an open dialogue conversation about what the community really wants, because if you're not serving your community, you're doing a disservice to them. Anti-fragility starts with you. Antifragility starts with you opening the doors. 
as I tell my students and people that do stuff with me, my job, right, is to open doors and kick down walls. And, and that's, that's what I want to do. And this is what you have to do. You have to open doors and kick down walls. You have to be able to have the people who have economic strife, right, to be able to find the person, whether it's through economic development, right, whether it's through uh, community development, however you guys use, and to be able to do this. Because you're absolutely right. When you start having people being evicted for, other, for reasons, it starts having serious economic disadvantage to the whole community, not just to those infected. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'm, um, th listening to it all, I, I like trying to distill it down to a, a word picture because I'm a, a picture person. And so trying to understand the difference between um, resilience and uh, anti-fragility. Um, I came up with this picture and see if it resonates or it, it's, it's what you're trying to get at. And that is, <clears throat> if you're an MMA fighter, if you're resilient, that means that when you get punched really hard, you bounce back up and you punch back. If you're anti-fragile, then you learn to avoid the punch or lessen the punch and move out of the way. That's fair enough. That's a good visualization. The back. We only have a couple minutes left and we'll, we'll wrap it up here in a second. So to be honest with you, I struggle with the word preparedness. Sure. Because first of all, you have to manage the expectation of what it means, community by community. You know, you avoid the punch, but if you're already down and out, how do you avoid the punch? I think that's what you're hearing a lot about today. If you look at the breakdown of the community, not only people are paycheck to paycheck, notwithstanding uh, healthcare, so how do we change the paradigm of what that means. Because I think that's the struggle communities have. We have haves and have nots every day. We talk about equity in terms of resilience, and we struggle with that term. And looking at COVID, the issue isn't medical care, it's, it's public health. It's the ability to avoid getting sick by having better health services at a younger age that repeats. So how do we change the paradigm? Because if I go to state by state, community by community, and the policy officials will have different expectations of what that word means at the end of the day. What was that? On the preparedness part, I think it sets the expectation that that's a destiny and you're never actually prepared, right? I mean, the whole definition of disaster is something that overwhelms your resources. That's sure. literally what we do. So the terms don't work together. And I, I know this is a FEMA term, all, but they don't. And so, and then the idea that, okay, what, this, is our, this is our clientele, this is our audience. So what does preparedness mean for all sections of that audience? And then how do you tailor recovery and assistance programs for those sectors? I think that, yes, I like that. And I'll just add my challenge with the word resilience overall and has been since we started talking about it is when you think about resilience or anti-fragile, how do you break that down so that's tangible, right? We talk about this with our public and we talked about preparedness you know, with public, but we never really get at the root of providing tangible, realistic, if I'm living paycheck to paycheck, does it mean when I go to the store, I buy one can of beans that I keep on a shelf in case I need something later? Like, like 
how do you build that level in for folks? So I know he's out of time, but yeah. All right, I'm going to answer this last question. I know I'm out of time. And hopefully people aren't knocking on the door to come for the next session. But I, I was a long time ago, and you know, was challenged about the idea of preparedness and what can you do. And I said I, I, I was guessing for about twenty dollars I could go to the ninety-nine cent store and have a pretty decent, a one-person, um, seventy-two-hour kit, and I was able to to do that. And I'm sure it's a little more expensive now now to do this. But I think that's what we have to do as well. Is, is when we when we look at specifically, let's talk about food for a second for for people just on a daily basis that are having a struggle with their economic with you know just a paycheck to paycheck and, and having food on the table for their people their children is how do we help them get through that i think you're right i think it is the idea of, of being able if they can afford right it sounds sad if they can afford that extra can of beans but we can help them that way too right because there's other resources that when we know who they are if we can identify these people when they come forward and say hey i need help and i think again when we go back to the community as emergency managers we can go and step in that that realm right we cannot be afraid to engage the community we cannot be afraid to engage the community we have to go to where they're at how many of you guys have ever walked through and helped and, and I, I'm not trying to put anybody in a spot, so you don't have to raise your hand if you didn't. But going through and, and helping, like, the homeless people. I, I'm a vet, and so I do a lot of vet stuff, and we do a stand-down every year, and we go and we help homeless vets, right? And it's as simple as, as, as trying just to help them out for just a bit and, and give them some supplies and stuff for that day, right? We go out in the wintertime, we give out blankets to the vets, things like that. We have to engage the community. As emergency managers, we can't stay in the office we're not helping our communities by staying in the office. So I just want to leave you with this one last word, right? Engage the community, okay, and help them. And I wouldn't use the words resilience. I wouldn't use the word anti-fragility when you walk into there, or even maybe even the word preparedness, right? But engage the community where they are today and help them through actions and through plans to get to the next step. And that's what we have to do as emergency managers. Thank you very much for spending time with me today.